My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Musafir Stories, India's very own travel podcast where each week we discuss the story of travelers in their own words and relive their experiences with you, our listeners. Hey guys, welcome to an all new episode of the Musafir Stories. Before we begin, a special thanks to Nandita, Tarun and Bahistar. Thank you guys for your feedback. It's much appreciated. As for today's episode, we have a very interesting and a special guest, an Australian academic and a clean energy enthusiast, Charles Worringham, who shares his learning from his journey across India. You could also check out Charles' work at www.indiapowerreview.com, where Charles is tracking some of India's energy transition statistics. Well, let's listen on. So without introduction... I'd like to welcome Charles Warringham, an academic from Australia who was recently on a trip visiting India. Charles, thank you so much for being a part of the Musafir Stories and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the Musafir Stories. My great pleasure, Saif and Faisal. Yeah. Thank you and uh, kudos, Charles. You got the pronunciations right at the first go. <laughs> uh, yes. So, Charles, the introduction that we give about you is um, pretty concise. Uh, so, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell our listeners um, what you do and uh, how you ended up in India? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, I, I'm a retired academic and I grew up in the UK and uh, spent about a third of my life over there. And then when I was a young man, I went across to the States for my higher education for uh, postgraduate. And I went met my wife there and we had uh, 15 very interesting years in the States and uh, I had the opportunity to go to, to Australia and uh, on a sabbatical for one year to a university in Queensland and really, really enjoyed it. And we had um, younger children at that time. We thought, boy, we have to come back here. This is a super place. So we did. We, we moved out here and became citizens and have been in Australia ever since. So I, I retired recently and Obviously, when you go through that sort of a change in your life, you look for things to do. And I traveled as a young man. I'd been done things like the um, the old interrail uh, experience that many young Europeans used to do back in the 1970s, traveling around uh, Europe by train all over the place in the summertime. And also, my wife and I had done a big bike trip around Europe um, when we first got married. So I think the travel bug had sort of bitten at an early stage. And when you give give up your full-time work, there's an opportunity to uh, to pick it up again. How did this um, travel bug for India arise uh, that after you retired, right? Yes, well, it, it had been on the boil for a couple of years, actually, before I retired, because one of the things that I had become really quite interested in was uh, some of the issues that we in our country and you and yours and, in fact, around the world are facing in terms of some of our mm -hmm. the big challenges, energy sure. and environment. You know, I think these are things that are really important everywhere in different ways, of course. And I'd had the interesting experience of running for um, 
uh, federal and state uh, parliaments oh, okay. in, in uh, Australia for the party called the, called the Greens, which is an environmental party, so very strong on environmental policy. And uh, I'm no longer doing that. But uh, when I was uh, the spokesperson for our state party in, in our 2015 state election, we had a lot of issues coming up about India because there's a plan to develop a, a huge new coal mine in Queensland with the goal of actually exporting to Asia and India in particular. And in fact, one of your big industrialists, uh, Mr. Gautam Adani, is the proponent of that. And that had become quite a controversial issue here in our own um, political uh, debate. And one of the, I was opposed to it, as indeed many people in Australia are opposed to, to it. We think that the days of burning coal to make electricity mm -hmm. really should right. be in the past, not in the future. So, but many of the questions that we had from our, our political opponents and from journalists was about issues like, well, what about energy poverty? What about those places which use our coal or could use our coal to make electricity and bring people out of extreme poverty? And I thought, well, you know, that's a serious point. That's a real, really important issue. I know a little bit about this. But after the election was finished, uh, I noticed a, a gentleman in Mumbai write a piece in, our, in the Guardian in, International Newspaper, okay. uh, a guy called Debbie Goenka, uh, who lives there. He's an environmentalist in Mumbai. And he wrote, you know, if Australian politicians are really so concerned about energy poverty in India, maybe they should come over here and take a look for themselves. And I thought, that's a great challenge, actually, even though I'm not active politically in that way anymore. It's a really important issue. I'd like to learn more about it so that I can help inform some of my fellow Australians about it. Uh, and so consequently, what I did was to do a lot of cold calling, really, to make contact with a number mm. of groups and individuals who'd never heard of me <laughs> and uh, arranged to go for a month uh, around the country by train and, and meet a lot of people and just really learn. That's the bottom line. Understand what the nature of the problems really really are. Okay. So that's how it how it got going. Cool. And it, uh, so this is not about um, business trip or a work trip, right? You were here to learn a little bit more about uh, the energy situation in India, uh, if I may, right? Absolutely. Yes, that's right. So not, not for work, mm -hmm. because my, my academic area was a completely different area. I actually studied and uh, did research in in. Uh, movement disorders uh, like Parkinson's disease and other things, nothing to do with this. But I think, you know, if you're an educated person these days and you've had the opportunity to be, to read, you know, what's going on in the world, you can't really fail to be concerned about some of these big challenges. And I'd found them to be really interesting. And you think the, the reason why I think I got really interested in India as well is because this is an enormously important period of development for the country. You've got a huge population still growing. You've got, um, you know, a major way down the roadway towards um, uh, an economy that is big, important, influential, linked to the rest of the world. So it's uh, whatever happens in India doesn't just affect India. It affects all of us. And I think it's really important that uh, those of us in other countries sit up and take note. Absolutely. And I think that's a great thought uh, to head it off with uh, uh, because a lot of us are um, busy with our own lives, just looking at it through our uh, narrow blinkers, right? We don't really look outside of our purview or whatever is, um, say, impacting the bigger, the bigger populace in general, right? But uh, as um, a trip in general, right, a one month trip, uh, especially to a country like India, and um, given the fact that it's the first time that you visited India, right? Uh, uh, how was how was the um, planning for this whole trip? Uh, how was that? It's 
I'm, I'm sure it's a whole different animal in itself, right? Yes, in a way, in a way. Well, except that I have to say, you know, you're young people, so you wouldn't remember this time, but there was actually a period before mm-hmm. an internet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in those days, planning trips was a very different ball game. You had to uh, go to the library and dig out materials there, you know, long periods of correspondence and letters and so forth. Much, much harder. So actually, of course, it is a great deal easier now to get information quickly, and that was certainly helpful. But uh, one of the things that when you have the great good fortune to retire is you can spend a bit of time Mm -hmm. doing your homework. Now, I did a lot of reading. I went down to the local library and got a lot of books and bought a few and got a few online. And there's some really wonderful and interesting books Mm. about modern India that I really, really enjoyed and learned a great deal from, which I think helped me to know a bit what to expect and what to look for as well. I'm thinking of some books Mm -hmm. by, for example, um, uh, one of the uh, non-resident Indians uh, based in the US, Anand Giridhiridas, who wrote a book in 2011, India Calling, which is a great, great story about the unfolding of modern modern India. A very bleak book, but I think incredibly insightful, um, harsh manders looking away, which is he, he wrote in 2015, uh, which tells you really a lot about the some of the social mm-hmm. issues in the country. Um, and in fact, in fact, I think some some people who are based overseas have a, a, a different sort of perspective on visiting any country. So um, a couple of foreigners, Edward Luce has a lovely book okay. called uh, In Spite of the Gods, The Strange mm-hmm. Rise of Modern India. Uh, or William Dalrymple, the, the, sure. the, the Brit, who's now you know uh-huh. virtually uh, virtually Indian, if he's not actually Indian, <laughs> and his City of Gins about Delhi, and written his first book, and, his, and many others subsequently. So I really immersed myself in some reading to try to understand it a little bit, and then it was really a matter of getting on with the logistics. And there's an outfit mm-hmm. in in London, SD Enterprises, who will be known to many people who have travelled by train in India, and they specialise in uh, in making Indian train bookings for foreign visitors. Okay. So I used their services and they had a, at that time, unfortunately this year, um, India Rail has just given this up, but they had a rail pass mm. that you could buy that was reasonably inexpensive and allowed you to book tickets, but also at the drop of a hat, you could use that pass to to get bookings you know, spontaneously. So that seemed like a fantastic opportunity mm. and that's what I, I organized. So I sort of sketched out a bit of a route and some visits and really went from there. Uh, it's great. It's great that now you've um, gotten set with the planning part of it, with the logistics part of it as well. Um, in terms of the rough uh, route, right, uh, of your whole India trip, uh, why don't you just call that out? Like, where do you head off from? Mm. Uh, where did it end? And we'll get into specifics later. But just as a route, sure. um, if you could just give us a, a brief outline. Yes, of course. Well, actually, one of the great advantages in a way of being completely new to a country is that in one way, a particular route is as good as any other you really don't know any better so you can just <laughs> go for it go for it and plan a route and see how it goes so i started out in, in delhi there's some people i did want to see there and it seemed a logical starting point and uh, i made my way very quickly i think it was the second or third day actually just a short trip to um uh, to Uttar Pradesh to via Lucknow to a little uh-huh. town of Unau because there's an opportunity to see a particular energy project there and that was that was really fascinating uh, and then I went back to Delhi had a little time there took the overnight train to Ahmedabad uh, unfortunately got a bit sick there so I didn't do too much but uh, mm. uh, I saw quite a bit of the old city which is is quite uh, quite fascinating and then on then sure. down to Mumbai across to Pune uh, Hyderabad next and then I made my way down to um, Bangalore, and I was going to visit uh, Coimbatore, 
But uh, just mm-hmm. at the time I was there, and this was late 2016, uh, the mm. um, Mrs. Jaya Lalitha, I think it is, the former chief sure. minister yes. of uh, Tamil Nadu, uh, died. And there was a little bit of concern on the news about how the trains were going to go in terms of crossing the border from Karnataka to, to Tamil Nadu. So I thought, well, sure. <laughs> I, I, I need to make my flight in Kochi. So I better, I actually took a flight on that last leg. But I have to say, since I was traveling at that time, one rather interesting aspect of it for a foreigner arriving was that uh, I landed in Delhi two days after demonetization. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and that made for an interesting experience because oh. uh, when I went to the travel agent or the, the bank here in, the, in Australia to get some rupees, uh, oh. they just got wind of this, of course, and all they had were the notes which had just been taken out of circulation. So, <laughs> uh, Oh, my God. Did, did, did they leave you shortchanged? Like, did they, uh, I had rather little cash coming in. And I very, when, I got, when I arrived at Indira Gandhi Airport, the first job was to go straight to the nearest ATM inside the airport and try and stock up. But I uh, couldn't get too much. So that made for an interesting first week or two. Um, I have to say, though, nothing mm-hmm. like some of the challenges that obviously some folks, out, particularly out in the country, were facing it was very evident yeah yeah it was uh, it uh, let's just say that it all it took all of us by shock i think those um especially those uh two or three weeks, weeks yeah. right after the monetization it was a completely different experience um but yeah um so another thing i, I just want to ask before we uh, delve into the details was um so this was a solo trip completely that's right yes yes um my my wife would have come with me, but I think she finds the subject of, of uh, energy transition not exactly to her taste, so she was kind enough to let me go on my own on this one. <laughs> but I do have every intention of making sure that we do travel in India together, and I will be planning a trip to Kerala at some stage. Very nice. Yeah, you should definitely come back. And um, also, just because you're uh, doing this solo, and um, as you said, it was your first time in India as well, right? Um, any uh, preconceived notions or uh, any, how do I say, I mean, it's not fear per se, but did you have any nervousness whilst you were signing up for this? I really can't say that I did. I think in a way, everyone experiences some form of culture shock, I suppose, and we're different guises when you travel to a different country and different culture for a short while. I had remarkably little. To be honest, I think having done a lot of reading, Mm -hmm. I think I knew a little bit about what what I might be uh, experiencing. And I think that's a really important thing. In fact, I'd really recommend that for all of your listeners who are planning trips. If you have the opportunity to sit down and do a little bit of homework, you're going to get much more out of your travel. Uh, It's not that you can replace uh, your trip, with reading, that never is going to be a substitute, but it can help you, I think, appreciate some of the uh, and have better expectations and appreciate what you're seeing a little deeper, a little more deeply. Yeah, I think uh, that's very, very useful advice and uh, something we personally recommend as well, and we do it ourselves too. Um, it would be a foreign country, for example, just when you're visiting a new place. I think just looking up about the place, about sometimes about the history or the culture, and um, even types of commerce for the, uh, for example, about that place, right? Uh, it lays out the context so much better, and um, it also feels sometimes that uh, you're able to connect the dots better. So that's what uh, we feel personally, and uh, we highly recommend that. And I think it's a great thing that you did that too, and especially. While visiting India for the first time, I'm sure you were um, able to derive a lot out of this than otherwise. I mean, sure, the experiences are great when uh, uh, there's an element of surprise, but um, you also run the risk of missing out on a lot of things if you don't quite know what to expect and what to look for, right? So it's great to hear that. Now, uh, 
Talk to us a little bit more about uh, your time in Delhi. Um, how, how was your time in Delhi? Uh, I know post-demonetization uh, would have been an experience in itself. Um, yeah. But how about the place? Yes, well, yes, I was not on the regular tourist route. So I, on this for this particular trip, you know, I could leave the Red Fort and uh, other places behind, knowing I could come back and see them as a more regular tourist at some point down the track. So I made my first task to understand how to use the metro and get around and actually uh, see different parts of Delhi. I, I met, had a few meetings that made that very, very helpful. And I was very impressed. I think the metro is a pretty amazing thing, actually. Uh, we have some big transport challenges in our big cities in, in Australia. And frankly, I think, you know, that's an enormous investment. It's been a big and difficult thing to create. But can you imagine mm-hmm. Delhi today without the <laughs> metro? Know. It would be... Incredible, yeah. So, so that was my job one. I became a bit of an expert on the yellow line and uh, <laughs> some of the uh, stops along the way. So that that yeah. was very. Yeah, it's very impressive, right? The way Delhi's connected because even Faisal and I were there. Um, I think two or three years ago. So I think today it's more developed. But even back in the day. Uh, a lot of our transport, uh, right, getting from place to place was uh, covered by using the metro. And uh, uh, I think it was one of the first metro lines in India also to start off. So uh, that way they've done a great job. And um, as I was looking up on um, a few things about the Delhi metro, apparently it's about uh, 2.5 million people that it ferries um, or um, 2.5 million riders that it carries each day. So I think that's very impressive just by sheer numbers. It certainly is. You know, the, the, the numbers are particularly impressive to Australians because uh, that's about a tenth of the Australian national population traveling on the Delhi metro every day. And the number of people traveling on the Indian train system is the same as the Australian <laughs> population every day. So <laughs> yeah, those are big numbers. Brilliant. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't interject, but uh, tell me more. Uh, so once you had figured out the metro, what, what was your uh, plan for Delhi, um, given that you were not looking at the tourist? I had a, a mm-hmm. couple of meetings and uh, I, I spoke, I well, first of all, I have to pay tribute to my host at uh, a my um, bed and breakfast place down in South Delhi, uh, Sanjeev, a really wonderful man who is extremely hospitable and uh, very, very helpful in getting a, uh, mm-hmm. a newcomer a little uh-huh. bit oriented. He's a lovely, lovely guy. And anyway, so I, I went to have a couple of meetings, one of which was up in uh, uh, northern part of Delhi, which proved to be quite difficult to find <laughs> the, the place. I had to actually have two goes to, to really find the location of this particular office, a, a group that looks at issues to do with India's rivers, uh, waterways, water, dams, hydroelectricity, those sorts of things. A very interesting uh, uh, gentleman, um, Himanshu Thakka, who period- periodically appears in the Indian media commenting on some of those issues. And not not much directly to do with energy, you wouldn't think, but of course, hydroelectricity is pretty mm. big in, in India. And one of the concerns, obviously, is that uh, there has been, there's always a trade-off. You can create energy if you dam a river, but what happens to the river? And there's a, a lot of issues around that. So he was very informative, mm. very interesting about that. Uh, so I went to meet with him. I met to I went met with a chap who's an, an expert on energy issues at Brookings, India, uh, which is in sort of West Delhi. Uh, that was fascinating. A lot of good data and a lot of research, which uh, that particular group does. So I, I started to get more information about the, the, the subject matter of my visit in a way okay. in Delhi. They're but, basically a yeah. policy think tank, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a yeah. policy think tank. And uh, they focus on a number of these issues related to you know, economic development, broadly speaking. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of work until now, uh, but anything apart outside of work that you indulged in, or uh, what about the food also? Like how's how's your uh, trust with Indian food? Uh, because I people sampled don't everything I could. <laughs> you did, okay. Uh, we, well, fortunately, the bed and breakfast gave us a fantastic breakfast every morning, so that really helped get things going. But I, I just was fairly eclectic, really. So um, I must admit, I was probably a little bit cautious about street food to begin with until I knew a little bit more. But I soon figured out that places. that have a lot of customers and it's good and hot uh-huh. you're not going to have any problems there even if you have a delicate tummy so uh, <laughs> I soon found that that was terrific okay. uh, so I just tried some different places and I must admit I'm a bit of an inveterate coffee drinker so I did uh, have to find a few of your coffee joints uh-huh. in various <laughs> spots around town brilliant so uh, that's good and I think that's a good first um, rule to go by that um, try anything that's hot and um the place looks relatively clean i think that's a good first rule to go by and uh, uh, it's great and popular if people go yeah. back it's obviously pretty good <laughs> yeah uh, but it's great that um um you did not become a victim of delhi belly right as as we call it uh, not at all no problems the whole trip actually <laughs> Well, that's nothing. Like yeah, that because uh, traveler's diarrhea or uh, Delhi belly, as we um, as a slang we call it, right? Uh, I think a lot of people yeah. do go down with it, uh, especially given the difference in how spicy the food can be or how different it can be. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people do face it, but uh, it's great. It's great that uh, uh, you're not bogged down by anything like that. Um, so, what did you have planned next um, while you while you were in Delhi? Well, actually, probably the, during that period, because I was only there for a few days before heading off, uh, was that trip out to the Uttar Pradesh, if right. I can tell you a little bit about that, because sure. that was quite fascinating. I had the opportunity just at the last moment, a uh, gentleman, uh, Simran Grover from uh, Boond Energy, which is a small social enterprise. Uh, they they do quite a few um, solar microgrids in particularly Rajasthan and the UP. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, do come along and have a look at uh, one of our inst- installations. So that's why I headed out uh, to the town of Unau, mm. and, uh, which is uh, just northeast of Kanpur, so just, just a little bit east of the Ganges there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very hospitable and took me out for a day to a very small, already a hamlet, not even a village. which had where you could see the electricity pylons marching across the fields but not coming to their own homes mm. and uh, uh, being a small hamlet obviously is not on highest on the list for electrification so what burned and other similar uh, groups do is to install uh, solar microgrids or panels on one person's mm. building suitable mm-hmm. building and then a dc supply to any customers there and this is a pay as you go system So somebody explained it to me there uh you know we're talking here about people who uh, may not be able to afford 300 rupees a month but they might be able to afford 10 rupees a day which right. when you think about it uh, yeah seems a bit odd but of course it makes sense these are folks who don't necessarily have much mm-hmm. in the way of savings and are not in a position to plan you know ahead for larger expenditures all the time so the pay as you go system enables people to basically purchase a, a certain amount of electricity and it goes onto a little um like a usb connector fits into their system in their house and then that uh, does all the billing the system's monitored from down in bangalore uh, and make sure there are no faults i thought it was a really interesting setup because it's it's uh, providing admittedly fairly small amounts of power but reliable power mm-hmm. at a known cost uh when people need it because i guess the problem still in many places particularly in the rural areas is that even though they maybe have an electrical connection many of the households may not be hooked up or indeed they may have a connection but power cuts may mean that they don't get 
power perhaps in the early evening at times where they really need it. So that's, that's a really ingenious solution. I think uh, we're going to probably see a lot more of that in those areas where it's extremely costly and logistically difficult to get power out to uh, from the grid. Right. Uh, but how about the affordability of uh, something like this? Um, like how expensive or how affordable are these? Yeah. Well, as you're probably aware, there are many places in the country where states have elected to subsidize electricity to rural mm-hmm. uh, areas and rural communities and farmers heavily. Uh, so it's more expensive, but the difference is that they uh, it's reliable. So when I'm speaking through my hosts to a couple of customers in this particular place, that's what they expressed. They said, we know we're going to get it when we need it. So it's actually very valuable to them. Um, and they can also choose when they when they want to buy electricity. So there's a degree of control over it, I think, which they found uh, pretty positive. Yeah, and quite flexible also that way, right? Um, so I think that's a mm, good, mm. Pl- a big plus. Um, so I think that's a great way to start off the, the journey also in one way that um, you got to experience some of this and some of this in the uh, little hamlets, like you said, right? Not just the bigger cities, but also in these little hamlets, which um, needed a lot more than uh, say some of the city folks for that matter. Um, and then the, after this, uh, after this little trip to Unao, did you head back to Delhi after? Yes, just briefly. And then I did, took the um, the Rajdhani to oh, okay. Ahmedabad. So I, I did have a, a visit or two lined up there, but I had a bit of a sort of flu bug sort of thing. So I had to lie low for a couple of days. And then I spent the rest of my time there really uh, looking around the old city. Okay. And I took the heritage tour, which they walked the walking uh-huh. tour okay. sure. of the old town, which was quite fascinating, going through some of the poles starting at a yeah. Hindu temple, ending up at a mosque yeah. and uh, going also <laughs> via uh, one, of, uh, one of the Sikh temples as well. Yeah, I did, this, I did this, I think, um, what is it, three months ago? Uh, so oh. it's the Swaminarayan temple to the Jama uh, Masjid, the Juma Masjid mosque, right? That's the one, yeah, I think yes, it's brilliant. Yes, and, uh, yes. It's great that you got yeah. to have a look at this, right? Because Ahmedabad in itself, um, like recently declared as a um, heritage city also, UNESCO uh, certified heritage city as well and uh, yes. it's really great that the the way in which these poles or these little neighborhoods as you mentioned um, are set up mm. and uh, a lot of them uh, have history that dates back to I think a few hundred years right 400-500 years so I think it was uh, really great uh, the only the only um, complaint I had was uh, my groups uh, or I don't know if it's usually like this my, my groups I seem to be way too big it was uh, more than 30 people I think or perhaps 40, 40 or 50 people uh, was that the case right. in, your, uh, yes. in your case also? It was, I can't recall the exact number, but probably a little bit less than that. But oh, yes, well. I can understand that. That's the price of popularity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, yeah, very cheap. And um, I think it was great, uh, about two and a half, three hours. But we had a yes, really yes. good time. And um, as um, like as you mentioned, right, it takes you from a Hindu temple to a, a mosque at the end. So it kind of gives you yep. a view of the secular fabric in India also, like how diverse yes, we absolutely. are that way. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, yep. a Jain temple, yep. a Sikh temple on, on road as well. <laughs> That's right. And some of the um, some of the architecture is most interesting. And from a point of view of energy and, and uh, environmental issues, one of the things I found really fascinating there was the design of the some of the old buildings. In fact, the Havali... Uh-huh building in which uh, the bed and breakfast was where I stayed was a particularly good example of this big underground water tank major water harvesting and the design of the interior courtyard is uh, you know really helps with ventilation and when the when the sun is really beating down so you know the uh, 
the people from previous generations learned quite a few smart things about how uh -huh. to design uh -huh. buildings in a way that you know harvests uh, resources carefully and allows people to uh, to lead relatively comfortable lives. And I think that's there's an awful lot of lessons we could learn from some of our uh, forebears from previous sure. generations mm -hmm. on those issues. So that's wonderful. And um, any any other places that you uh, stopped by while in Ahmedabad? I, I went to uh, the um, uh, Gandhi's ashram on the north right. side of the uh, the river. Yeah, which is uh, ashram. Terrific experience. Yes, yes. And uh, so, as I said, I was a little a little bit uh, a little bit unwell, so I didn't right. venture too much further than that. But I really enjoyed it. And it's it's a very busy city. I found it a little bit challenging walking around some of the streets. To be honest, uh, it seemed to be really really hectic uh, in the old town there. But uh, Nonetheless, fascinating place. I'd love to go back. <laughs> you should. You should definitely come back. And um, what was planned after um, after Ahmedabad? Like, uh, did you move? You said Mumbai next. Uh, yes, went down to Mumbai, and that was rather rather interesting, actually, because I, when I got to the station for the train and found my my allotted spot on the platform and looked at the passenger uh -huh. list uh, pasted on the outside of the carriage. Uh, I happen to have a PhD, so I was down there as Dr. Warringham, and I noticed they had a, an asterisk saying medical doctor. <laughs> so I'm really pleased nobody had a heart attack on that train, because if I'd been called up to help them, they may not have made it, and I might be facing a lawsuit. So that's uh, just as well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, anyway, took the, the train down to Mumbai. Yeah. It's just some um, yeah. some of the quirks that you'll come across in India. I think people just assume yeah, that was, that was, uh, you're yeah. a medical doctor if you have that. Yeah, and fair enough. But anyway, so I got down to Mumbai, but I found that they had um, booked me through to, I can't recall the name, name of the station now, but from the very, very far east of the metropolitan area, my hotel was over in the west. So I decided to disembark before we got into Mumbai and take one of the locals. And that was uh, a bit of a, a lesson for me in uh, the local train setup. Put it this way, I was compressed against the side <laughs> of the carriage for a good half hour. I'd, I really am impressed by Mumbaika commuters. I don't know how they do it, but uh, it's a pretty amazing experience being on those trains. <laughs> yeah, a completely different experience to um, say the metro, for, for, for example, right? But um, I should say you've been. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, should say, I should say you've been very adventurous there by uh, hopping on into a, a Mumbai local <laughs> right after you've landed. Well, you can't not do it, can you? <laughs> can you visit Mumbai and not do that if you're a bit of a train buff? You have to. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, yeah, what was lined up in Mumbai? Tell us. Uh, well, there I met a couple of folks. Um, Debbie Goenka, who's this environmentalist I right. mentioned, who's a, a wonderful man and fighting lots of very important, I think, environmental um, battles, sure. really, about the way in which development unfolds in that city. And a uh, very accomplished guy, and he had some, some good thoughts uh, for me. And also I met a, a gentleman at um, IIT Mumbai, mm -hmm. uh, Professor uh, Rangan Banerjee, who was very knowledgeable about India's whole electricity system. So he certainly upped my knowledge quite a bit there and gave me a few pointers of things to look for. And he actually subsequently visited us here in Australia. He was down in the um, India-Australia Institute at the University of Melbourne and gave a talk down there uh, a little while okay. ago. So it was good to mm -hmm. see him again. And, um, yeah, so Mumbai was uh, a fairly short trip. Then I went on to Pune and uh, met a few folks there. One in particular, a very interesting group of food company that has a, a model farm and processing center where they're, they're, they're using now really as a teaching mm -hmm. farm for their uh, contractors because they discovered that they could actually become far more uh, profitable basically by sound environmental mm -hmm. practices, by water harvesting by making sure that there was clean water supply for the for the crops and i think by doing a lot of 
uh, very sensible and good forward-thinking plans, really, about how to uh, assist people who um, uh, would otherwise be at the mercy, really, of the local market, plug into a system that um, uh, has some quite progressive ideas about how to get produce to market in a way that benefits everyone along the chain. Yeah, so that was and I think, uh, yeah, this is a very, um, I think, very important bit of the ecosystem also, right? You can't really rely just on the um, government-funded or the government-subsidized um, plants to uh, for, for your energy needs, right? Uh, these other individual, uh, I mean, um, independent and uh, much smaller players, uh, they are the ones who come up with innovations. So I think these are really critical um, in kind of solving this whole energy puzzle that we have in one way also, right? No, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, everyone's got a part to play. Obviously, governments have a part to play, and that's really crucial to sort of set the framework, set the policies, and and you know take on the tasks that it's not possible for anybody else to do. But I think some of these social enterprises are pretty forward thinking, and they get they they have the freedom to perhaps explore and and experiment a bit with some different solutions. So those are very we can learn a great deal from the the ones that are more successful for sure. So then from Pune, it was on to um, Hyderabad. Uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, my my visit there was to an energy efficiency expert, uh, Rajhiran Bilulakar at the Indian Staff College. And he's done a lot of very thoughtful uh, work on how India can basically build the new cities, the new buildings, commercial and residential, in a way that uh, doesn't squander energy more than it needs to. So he's been very instrumental in some of the new building standards and energy efficiency standards for buildings, which is not a very glamorous area, to tell you the truth. Uh, but it's really important because uh, it makes a fantastic difference to the requirements for um, generating energy. If you can do it, get your new buildings. And as he pointed out, something like 40% of all of India's buildings by mid-century have yet to be built. So there's mm. an opportunity to do it really smartly. And uh, let's hope that that does happen. So Hyderabad was great. Yeah. And um, what time of the year did you visit here? Um, uh, this was November. Chance? November. Okay. So I think relatively um, good uh, good weather conditions, right? Otherwise, Hyderabad usually tends to get a little hot. Um, but yeah, November should have been okay, I guess. Yes, it was uh, actually very, very comfortable. I went out also to, I did a little bit of tourism there. I went to the Golconda Fort, which is a sure. pretty uh-huh. mighty and impressive uh-huh. edifice over on the west side of the city there. Uh, it was quite fascinating to see that. And what about the Hyderabadi biryani? Did you get a sample of that? <laughs> Do you know, I was a little bit naive. I hadn't quite cottoned on to that being the local uh-huh. dish. Okay. <laughs> so I was probably a bit too obsessed with the purpose of my trip and... Uh, <laughs> didn't experience everything I could have done there. Okay. Yet another reason to come back, I would say. So. <laughs> Definitely. I think a very strong reason for you to come back and um, come back with your wife also, right? So, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think these are some of the things that you can definitely pick up. And um, so after Hyderabad, did you head off um, to Bangalore then? Yes. Uh, so down to Bangalore and I had a lot of fascinating visits there and spoke to some really terrific people. Um, I think amongst them I would have to name uh, Dr. Harish Hande as a really wonderful person, a real humanitarian. He, he's a, an Indian who got his training in uh, basically solar engineering in the very early days uh, of that that sort of development, that area, technical area uh, in Massachusetts, I believe, and uh, came back to India and he set up the Selco Foundation and they do uh, a lot of this work where they're also putting in uh, solar plants in places which don't otherwise have access to electricity. And one of the things he said that I found really interesting and that their foundation works on is trying to make sure that uh, communities, particularly rural communities, it's no good just giving people enough power for you know mobile phone recharging and a couple of lamps, although that's that's helpful and a fan. 
you've really got to help the community's economic prospects. So if there are ways in which the local agricultural uh, challenges, for example, can be assisted by providing the right kind of know-how and the right kind of uh, uh, of technical uh, mm. uh, equipment and so forth, that's really important. So he places a big emphasis in his group on ensuring that the staff who works with him uh, go out and try to solve problems, not to just give people a product or a service, but tries to actually solve their specific local problems. That's pretty impressive. But I also saw a few other folks there, um, uh, Dr. Um, T.V. Ramachandran at um, the, uh, where is he based? That's that the, um, is that the Indian Institute yeah. of Science. Yeah, I see. Yes. Yeah. And he's, uh, he, he works a lot on environmental and energy issues. And particularly they're looking, he's looking at some of the, issues related to hydro up in the Western Ghats mm. and diverting uh, some of the power from that across to, to Bangalore. And I think his, his view is that Bangalore, unless it takes its water challenges really, really seriously and very quickly, it could be facing some enormous difficulties yep. much more rapidly than anyone yep. might expect. So he, he was uh, had a strong cautionary note for how we develop these these cities. Yeah, I think I can definitely, as as a local, right? Uh, so both Faz and I yeah. for Bra- Bangalore also, we can definitely vouch yeah, that uh, yeah. given the way in which the city has expanded also, right? And there's been a lot of um, migration from different parts of India to Bangalore as well. So that way, yep. Um, yep. Yep. the city has expanded like crazy. And uh, even um, not just electricity-wise, not just the hydro power-wise, even just in general terms of the water bodies, right? I think we used to have like 200-odd lakes mm. back in the day, and now we are just left to a handful. So we're losing a lot of them, and unless we take some concrete steps, I think it's... Um, we have to do something. Otherwise, I think uh, the end's not far in terms of um, how these resources go down the drain. So I think that's... No, that's quite uh, right, yes. yes, and, and indeed, in case of water... Obviously, a lot of the coal-fired power stations in India use um, fresh water from the river systems for cooling. And there have been a number of instances over the last couple of years where they've had to shut down plants because of a shortage of water or competition with water for, um, you know, with other users, uh, irrigators uh, and uh, people for just drinking water. So that's one reason, I think, amongst many, why India would be really wise to keep up with its um, strong push to transition to clean energy because it's not just about energy. It's also about the basic resources of clean water and clean air. And uh, goodness me, you know, the last few weeks in Delhi, I think people can appreciate the significance of, yep. of cleaning uh, up the air. Yeah, you you, you probably have seen um, a bit of it firsthand, right, being in Delhi. Uh, I think it's just also given that we are such a big and growing population, I think that's also a big, big reason that we have to clean up our act. Um, because for, if you have... Uh, if, if, if it was a much smaller country, maybe we could have gotten away with it by finding things, just getting around it. But now with this big of a population, we have to do something um, concrete. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard for um, the future generations that are coming up, right? Yeah, so some real challenges that we're looking at. But I think in one way, uh, we're doing, um, we're taking the right steps. It's just that uh, the way they're implemented, because even in terms of solar energy, right, that's something that the current government is focusing on quite a bit. Um, so um, they, they have, I think, Absolutely. a set target yes, of, um, I can't quite remember, 100 gigawatts of... Um, well, total of 175 of um, wind and solar by 2020. 
2025 gigawatts. Yeah, which would be a right. huge, huge and ambitious target. And even if India doesn't quite make it, it's making enormous strides towards it. And I think it has the, the, the really fascinating thing to me is that India has an opportunity, if it gets this right, to really, really set an example to the rest of the world. And a practical example, you know, methods that can be adopted and picked up elsewhere. And, uh, you know, that, that's a, it's a very rare th- thing that happens, that kind of opportunity. So if India gets it wrong, we're all in trouble because uh, <laughs> if it goes down the road of, you know, much increased coal consumption for energy, it's not just India that will suffer, you know, the our warming, global warming situation will simply get worse. So, you know, these, these things are important, but they're also, you have to be positive about it. There's, there's great opportunities and terrific work being done. At a much more local scale, by the way, when I was in Bangalore, I got the chance to visit a group called um, Pollinate Energy, which is another okay. uh, social enterprise. It's uh, actually Australian founded, and they work with rural migrant communities. So in the, in the uh, sort of squatter camps where people come in from the the surrounding areas, perhaps during a, a very hot, dry spell when it's difficult to make ends meet out in some other parts of the state for construction work and other kinds of work. And uh, often one of their problems is there's there's no energy supply for them. So Pollinate sets them up with um, solar lanterns and clean cook stoves and uh, basic things that help them uh, help their time in the in the city because usually people will be there for a few months and then go go back. Um, but but really assists them in. Uh, their energy needs, uh, which otherwise may not go, may go unmet, sure. actually. So that yeah, was pretty interesting. fascinating. And, um, you, you got a local connection also, right? Australian connection? <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, Polandand Energy was actually, this is a funny thing. It was actually founded, and I had no idea, by a former student of mine at university. <laughs> <laughs> and I only learned that when I got back to Australia. So, yeah, so that was, there is a bit of a connection yeah, there. Funny coincidence. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Um, so, this, was this like uh, inching closer to the end of your trip? Like how, how long has it been? Yes, now? Uh, yes. How many in terms of, oh, that of days? Was, that took me to about three three weeks three or so. Weeks, so okay. um, I then headed down to, to Kochi. And as I said earlier, I just just took, took the plane down there because right, that right. was my last few days. And I became just a real tourist again, basically. Uh, there was no, no visits. Uh, I could please myself. Went out to Fort Kochi uh-huh. and looked at the, some of the history of that very interesting area. Uh, met a chap who uh, drives. Uh, he drives an auto rickshaw around uh, uh, Fort Kochi for mostly for the foreign visitors. And I couldn't figure out on the front of his his rickshaw he had um, the town of Newcastle in <laughs> Australia, in the the state of New South Wales, and some slogan about Newcastle. I said, "Well, what's that all about?" And he said, "A couple of Aussies visited uh-huh. a couple of years ago, and they loved his his rickshaw so much they bought it from him and wanted to take oh, it back wow. to Australia, but the Australian government wouldn't allow him to." To use wouldn't allow them to use it there. Wouldn't pass their roadworthiness test or something. <laughs> so so they had to leave it in in, uh, in Kochi. So that was kind of fun. But uh, no, it's a fascinating place, and the history is obviously quite different and quite distinct from from other towns that I visited there. Um, and I, I I enjoyed that very much as a way to end up the trip and let my hair down and just look around a little bit more. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, wonderful. And so, so did you? fly back right from here or did you have to head back to Delhi um, to, to return to no, Australia? No, yes. I flew back from, from Kochi and uh, uh, digested some of the information I had and I did have the opportunity to come back this last February to the um, World Sustainable Development Summit in Delhi and also the um, an Energy Access Summit so just for a short stay and I'm going to be back actually next month uh, for one of those meetings and then my son is going to join me and we're going to do a tr- another train trip. We're going to head uh, Head east, actually. Uh-huh. Head towards the Eastern Ghat Mountains. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, have a little look around there. So I promised my son that we should do one 
fairly serious trip together while we have the opportunity and that's that's well, that's the one we've chosen. <laughs> that's brilliant and uh, we're glad that you've chosen India. So um, yeah. I was actually going to ask you like uh, what are the impressions India has left on you and uh, it seems like it's good impressions given that you've uh, come back a couple of times since and um, now you're planning to come back with your son again. So I think it's really, really heartwarming to well, hear that. Well, it is a, just a fascinating place. Um, it's not an easy country for for everyone to to travel in. Sure. I think you know some of the logistical obstacles are, are quite real in some respects, um, and there are some things I, I don't shouldn't pretend. There are not some sites and some things that are a little confronting to people who have not experienced them before. But I think you know we live in a very genuinely interconnected world. Lots of people in India, your age particularly, have do have the opportunity now to see more of the world, and uh, for those of us who have had the sort of fortune to live in very affluent, very wealthy parts of the world. It's incredibly important, I think, that we understand some of the the challenges which other places um, have and see what ways we can think of to play our small part in uh, in making sure we are, we're all in a better place down the track. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much, Charles. It's been like really wonderful listening to your story and for enlightening all of us and maybe showing us a different perspective about how we can look at um, our lives and travel also. So thank you so much. And I just had one question to ask uh, with respect to a traveler. Like you have been traveling on a mission, a mission to understand how energy and uh, a sustained living is happening. So any tips for a traveler? Well, I suppose um, the one experience I have had is that I mean, people travel for many different reasons, don't they? I mean, all of us travel for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes right. it's purely for, for pleasure. Sometimes it's because we have a particular activity we want to do, you know, like uh, adventure tourism or traveling for sport, you know, people go around the world for running or whatever else it might be. So I think there's a, we can, all those different reasons why people travel are completely valid and no one type is better than any other. But the one thing I experienced, I think about this trip, and maybe it's if I can pull rank with age and say that, you know, when you've been knocking around on the planet for a bit and you've learned a few things, it's a little bit easier, I think, to to develop an idea for travel that has some sort of purpose in mind, some kind of understanding in mind. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be history, language, culture, any aspect of it. So it doesn't have to be something as arcane as as energy that I was interested in. But I think if you go to a place with a purpose, your experience of that place is quite simply deeper and uh, more, more valuable. Right. I think that's a brilliant thought and uh, thank you so much for enlightening all of us and um, yeah, giving us a great perspective also of things and um, how one can look at things and travel in general, right? Uh, so thank you so much and um, just before closing this off, I just wanted to pick on you a little bit about uh, whether you got a chance to watch the latest Australia-India cricket series. <laughs> how dare you bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, no, I, I, I was very well aware of the results. Congratulations, India. Um, brilliant games, brilliant play. Got some great players there. I have a small connection there because I had a colleague at work whose um, young son just became an Australian cricketer oh, fairly wow. recently, young Matt, R- Matt Renshaw, one of the batsmen. In fact, he came over to India in 2017, I think, on the, the tour there. Uh, didn't stand out, but it was lovely to see somebody you, you knew uh, make it onto the team there. So, yeah, I found that actually was a fantastic way to start conversations with folks in taxis and ubers sure because, cricket yeah that is a connection that we surely have between our countries yeah i think it uh, that 
clearly surpasses boundaries and cultures and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's the big unifier right uh, as all as they say and uh, yeah i had to rub it in a little bit because it was the first time i think um, an away team has won a series uh, in australia right so <laughs> i'm sorry no offense yeah absolutely no a bit of a bit of history cricket history there <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, I'd just like to wrap this up, Charles, by saying that um, thank you so much. First of all, we are um, delighted that um, we had this opportunity to host you and uh, talk to you about this trip. And uh, we are even more happy that um, you really liked your time in India, your experiences that you enjoyed here and you're coming back. And uh, if possible, we should keep in touch and we should definitely catch up when you're here next time. So thank you so much for um, this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. Thank you, Saif. And thank you, Faisal. That was yet another great episode of The Vasafir Stories. If you guys like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Audioboom, Savan, Pocket Casts, CastBox, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app available on iOS or Android. Please do leave us a review on iTunes. It goes a long way in the show's discoverability. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We go by the handle The Vasafir Stories. Or, if it suits you, you could email us at themosafirstories at gmail.com or visit our website at www.themosafirstories.com for more information. All of these links will be made available in the show notes section of each episode. So here's to more traveling, sharing and inspiring. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, happy travels and goodbye. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu/gradschool.